0: Well, hello again and welcome. Uh, Welcome to another uh, installment of our uh, Facebook Live series. We're doing an interview today and I'm really excited that you're here to join us. Uh, My name is Guy Stevens. I am the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I began the alliance a, a little over uh, probably about a year and a half ago now uh, as a way to raise awareness around the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation and really beyond. We've got a lot of friends now and uh, all places all throughout the world. And uh, we really want to effect a positive change to help make our schools safer for students, teachers and staff. Uh, we know that there are better things we can do, and if we can do better, we know we need to do better. So today I'm very excited to have an interview with Alex Campbell, who is an amazing uh, advocate uh, related to restraint and seclusion, amazing self-advocate. Uh, we're going to be interviewing Alex today, uh, but I want to let you know a couple things before we get into the interview. First, I want to let you know that we will be taking Uh, questions uh, during this interview. Uh, We have a lot of questions lined up for Alex, but if you have questions, feel free to put those in the chat. Uh, We may hold off until uh, later in the interview to get to some of those questions, so uh, kind of keep that in mind. Uh, The event will also be, um, while it's live, it will also be available to view later on either Facebook or YouTube, and we also make it available as an audio podcast. So you have a lot of options. So I want to begin by introducing you to today's uh, co-host. I've got today with me, uh, our co-host, Daya Chaney-Webb. And Daya is a member of the Alliance Against Occlusion Restraint team. Uh, So it's really exciting for everybody to get to meet another, well actually two members of our team today because Alex is also part of our team. So Daya is a mom, she's got two teenage sons, uh, one with autism and she lives in Maryland and has been very involved in education in the Baltimore County area since about 2013. Uh, first serving as a chair and then a member of the Area um, uh, Education Advisory Council to the Board of Education, You know, offering a lot of guidance on things like special education needs in the county, uh, grassroots initiatives and coalition building, and really a big advocate of, of kind of building strong partnerships. Uh, she's been very uh, active also in federal legislation for healthcare, education and kind of civil rights of children with complex medical needs and disabilities. Um, now, she likes to have fun, too, when she's not doing all those things. And, uh, you know, you, you might find her uh, listening to live music or cooking or traveling or uh, loving the, the water somewhere. Uh, she happens to be our uh, legislative director for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And I'm proud to have her as a friend and colleague. It's been great to be able to uh, work alongside Dea And we're really excited about working together to influence change. So welcome, Dea.
1: Oh, thank you, Guy. I, I'm really just so excited to be here today to introduce someone so special.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and bring Alex into the conversation. If you would be so kind to introduce Alex to our listeners and viewers.
1: Absolutely. So like I mentioned, it is really with a lot of excitement that I'm here today to introduce this remarkable person. Uh, Alex is an advocate for students with disabilities and and executive director for Campbell Advocacy, but I wouldn't just say he's just any advocate. He's pretty much one of the most exemplary advocates I've almost ever met. Um, I'm really lucky enough to get to work with Alex as he is the Keeping All Students Safe Act campaign director for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And he's proud to be a part of the education team at the Human Projects. He attends high school at, in a public high school setting in rural Virginia, enrolled in Powhatan's, did I say that right, Alex?
2: It's Powhatan. Oh, no, I didn't. It's fine, everybody messes
1: it up. Advanced College Academy program. So this means that while Alex is completing high school, he's also completing his associate's degree at the same time. Alex was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when he was three years old. When he was in elementary school, he was subjected to multiple counts of restraint and seclusion for disciplinary reasons. In 2014, Alex began advocating for the need to regulate the use of restraint and seclusion. He has inspired the creation of not one, not two, but three laws that have passed in Virginia. In 2018, Alex was invited to a congressional briefing and asked to reintroduce the Keeping All Students Safe Act to the United States House of Representatives. And he hopes to keep inspiring and he does so daily, even just working with this team. Thank you for being here, Alex. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the introduction, um, Dea, and thank you for
2: having me, Guy. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, you know, Alex, um, I, you know, I was thinking back and of course I'm, I'm going off script as I always do, but I was thinking back to when I first um, kind of met you, um, you know, my son had been uh, through restraint and seclusion and I had in my research found a story about you. And uh, I remember this story had the, the line about that you were you were working to shut down the seclusion rooms in Virginia. And I thought, wow, what an amazing story, and, and what an amazing person. And I remember sending you an email because uh, there, there was a contact email there, and and very quickly getting a response from you. And I was just, I was, you know, just honored that you would take, you know, have the have the time to respond in uh, such a personal way. And you know, I remember making that connection with you and just being so inspired by by all that you've been doing. And you know, of course, we've we've known each other now for a while, and you know, last um, winter, you, you joined our team, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, uh, high school and Campbell advocacy, you know, also participating in the Alliance Against Inclusion Restraint. Really excited to to have you as part of this team and excited about this interview. You know, I, I've, I've been learning more about you and your story um, as we've been talking kind of leading up to this. And, you know, I know you and I had a chance to kind of talk about this interview as we prepared for it. And, you know, I appreciate your your willingness to to share your story. It really, your willingness to do that is influencing change. You know, we heard we heard Dea was saying about the, the the things that you've influenced, and I know it's hard. I know it's hard whether you're a parent of a child or whether you're someone like yourself that has been through this. And uh, I know it's hard for us to share our stories. And you know, we we've had this you know, these traumatizing experiences that, that are hard to share. But the power, of course, is the inspiration that they can have in inspiring others to realize that they can influence change. And your story is really inspirational. Um, I do want to remind you, though, that, that this is, again, you have been subjected to some trauma, some significant trauma through your experience. And that's what led you to this. Um, if at any point you need a break or, you know, you you need to finish the interview. I don't want there to be any pressure on you at all. We know these things are difficult to share, and you and I have talked about the kinds of questions that we would talk about today. But I just want you to know that we're very sensitive to your experience, and again, we appreciate that that you're you're doing this and sharing all that you're doing. Uh, but realize, for your sake and for others that may be watching this, you know, hearing what Alex is going to share with you some of that may be really difficult. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that sharing it really, though, gives us the ability for people to understand what's happening uh, and what it's like. So again, Alex, thank you so much for being here today. And we're really excited to start with our interview questions. And again, I'll remind people that we will have an opportunity for you to ask some questions as we go through. Uh, I may to get to those kind of later in the interview. So just uh, hold tight if I don't get your question right away. So with that, uh, Daya, I'm going to hand it off to you to ask a couple questions and I'll, I'll pop in here as well.
1: Great. You know, I love to ask questions. That's right. <laughs> so, Alex, I we understand that you were first restrained and secluded in elementary school. I would love to hear more about this experience. And first, we talked a little bit about your background, but remind us as a with the audience here, how old are you right now?
2: So I am... Um, 14 years old right now and I will be 15 in August and then to go um to more of your question um I was secluded and restrained in elementary school I attended I believe it was seven schools Mm -hmm. as an elementary schooler um and many of them were private day schools um and I was that's where the restraint and seclusion happened Um, you know, one of the seclusion rooms and one I frequently speak about um, had a black walls and no lights and a barbed wired window. And the principal would use a a desk to hold the door closed. Um, And then at another school, um, I was sent to the hospital because of a restraint. But because the way the law was worded, Um, the teacher did not face any consequences because she claimed that what had happened was because she wasn't trained adequately. Mm. Um, There was another school I attended where I was restrained um, almost every day as an elementary schooler. And so I think, you know, I think there's obviously uh, this is, is disappointing and it's my, hope that this doesn't have to continue happening, um, to children because I, I mean, I think what's important is when, you know, both of my parents are public educators. Um, my dad is a fourth generation educator. And so when this had kind of happened to me, they had already been in education combined for, for 20 years and they didn't have any idea that this existed.
3: Mm -hmm. And I
2: think, um, you know, that says a lot that this, this isn't all You know, not all teachers know about this. This is a small pocket that's typically done in schools that isolate and separate children with disabilities.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned a couple of interesting things, if you don't mind, I just want to touch on one. You mentioned the number of times you change schools. And it's interesting because uh, we have an experience that correlates with that as well. And, And the interesting thing is we weren't necessarily changing schools. Um, because we needed to, but often the programs were being moved around to different places. So my son was one that would really benefit from stability in relationships. And yet, uh, I, I kid you not, there was a point where every year we were in a different place. And it was often at the convenience of the program that they were moving things around. And, and sometimes children that probably need the most stability in their lives are the ones that are being moved around the most.
2: Yeah, uh, Matt- I- that's that's what I've noticed as well, and a lot of times I was kicked out of school. Um, I guess for things that I considered unreasonable. So the school with the seclusion room, or uh, with the block seclusion room, I was kicked out um, because my dad questioned the record keeping of the principal in terms of the use of seclusion, and he had made it obvious that um, you know the records were falsified and the principal also recorded videos of me in the seclusion room and then disposed of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when my dad began questioning that, I was kicked out. I was also kicked out of another school as a fourth grader. um, And they claimed that I was uh, inciting a riot on the school. Um, So I guess, you know. What were you doing?
1: What were you doing, Alice? Um, And I guess, well, I had
2: kind of... Just, I think I told said something to other students to the effect of that I just wasn't happy there and I thought it was a horrible place and the teachers weren't qualified and then they took that and said I was starting a riot and they you,
3: kicked me out for that. You
0: you had an opinion,
1: right? Yeah. I mean that's a yeah. terrible
0: terrible thing to have, huh? Um, c- can you mm-hmm. tell us, you know, in other instances? I mean, I, I don't know how many times you were restrained or secluded, but it sounds like it was happening. Uh, frequently. And of course, if you look at a lot of the guidance, the guidance says, like, if this is happening over and over again, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. Many times we see the same kids getting restrained and secluded frequently. What kind of things were were you being restrained and secluded for?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. And I know, um, you know, one of our our uh, it was either you or um, Jennifer Ted, one of our colleagues at AASR, had brought up um, the other day that one student had been restrained 500 um, plus times. And it gets to the point where when do you realize that the same practice doesn't work? And I think, you know, what I was restrained and secluded for was um, I, it was things like tearing up paper or standing on a chair or defiance.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and what happened is that this school with the black seclusion room, um, I had an amazing teacher there. It wasn't the teacher. It was the principal. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher, you know, when I would, I guess misbehave like any third grader misbehaves, the teacher would put me in timeout for and instead a timer for like three minutes, which I think is an appropriate consequence. Um, and then the principal, when he was making his rounds throughout the school, would see me in timeout. And then he would take that upon himself to move me to the seclusion room.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: And so I think I but going back to it, the, the things, you know, it was um, they had said at one of the schools where I was restrained um, by five people. They had said that I threatened to throw a computer out of the window Mm -hmm. and the room we were in didn't have any windows. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a lot of things that kind of go with it.
3: Right.
0: That well, you know, and one thing that's interesting, of course, is that one of the problems here is that we don't have federal law that's protecting kids and, and protecting, you know, the the large population of children with disabilities and minorities and boys that are that are subjected to restraint seclusion. We don't have federal law. Um, but if you look at federal guidance, federal guidance is clear and says, you know, we shouldn't be using restraint or seclusion for for, you know, for discipline. We shouldn't be using it for minor behavior infractions. It should be used in, in situations of imminent serious physical harm. And, and that really is about a life or death type of injury that a student or someone else might um, might be subjected to. And, and certainly your experience, you were not causing life or death injuries. You were being restrained yeah. and secluded for behaviors, for noncompliance, for having an opinion. And I mean, that's a huge problem, I think, not just in Virginia, but really across the nation.
1: And self-advocacy, you know, I think, you know, having an opinion and then advocating for yourself you know, and you were nine, is that what you said?
2: Yes. (laughs)
1: Um, And so what happened then, if if you don't mind moving forward a little bit, once you changed into a private placement, you know, tell us a little bit more about what, you know, your experience shifted into. So, well, I was,
2: so I guess to kind of give you uh, all a timeline, I started at my public elementary school where I was assigned and then they had built a new elementary school, which is not my assigned elementary school, but they had founded this autism program there. And so I was moved there because, you know, my parents were told that this program was the best thing ever. You know, it was amazing. And then shortly after that, and this is, you know, after Conveniently, after the principal broke some some federal laws and was put on a few plans by some people, um, I was kicked out of there and moved to a private placement because the principal, she had said she could no longer serve me in her school. And that was the excuse she used. Um, and so what happens at these private placements is that principal didn't have to pay for it. It didn't come out of her budget. It came out of Powhatan County's budget, not even the school system. My Standardized testing scores no longer reflected back on her school, and she didn't have to deal with me at all. So it was a win win situation for her. And so, what happened is I moved into these private day placements, and what I noticed is I saw a decrease in the instruction I was being provided. Um, I saw teachers that were only required to have GEDs and um, high school diplomas when in the state of Virginia and public school. Teachers are required to have um, bachelor's degrees. They have to go through a certain licensure process, and most of them have master's degrees here. Um, and so I think that kind of goes with it of of why you know these schools just they're not adequate. And I felt you know isolated. I mean, I would go to soccer practice and not know anyone who was my age there because I spent my day in mm. segregation. Right. Um, and so that's really what I noticed in these schools. And because they were segregated, it gave them an increased opportunity to use restraint seclusion. Wow.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah that, that's, that's, that's terrible. And, and it's not inconsistent with what data shows us from around the country. Uh, I've looked at data from my own state, Maryland, and while they serve a, a very small population of kids in these non-public uh, placements, uh, it represents about half the restraint seclusion instances for the, for the state. So it definitely seems like that is very often the case. One of the things that you and I talked about, um, you know, talk about your experience. So we know that you know restraint and seclusion can lead to serious injuries. Uh, it can lead to a significant trauma, and it can even lead to death. Um, and unfortunately, we've we've had some very sad stories, um, even even fairly recently, about children that have died being restrained. And, uh, you know, there are certain forms of restraint, of course, that are that are more dangerous. And, you know, one of those is a, a something called prone restraint. And, and when you and I were talking about this, you brought up prone restraint and you said, you know, it's important that people understand what it feels like, what it feels like to have that happen to you. And, and I know this is an area that, that it, you know, I don't want to you know put you in a sensitive spot, but that you had expressed interest in kind of sharing. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes.
2: Yeah, so I was put in a. Um, and a prone restraint at, at a particular, and this was when I, I threatened to throw a computer out of the window in a room without windows. Um, so, and I don't even remember saying that. So that could have been an excuse that they had made up. Um, but I, it was done by five staff members and um, they basically slammed me into the, the floor and held my face down into the floor. Um, and I think, you know, what happens in these prone restraints is, uh, is not being able to, you know, as, as you're not able to breathe because your, your face is literally in, uh, in the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember at the same school and this was kept very quiet. Um, they had actually restrained a kid and had to call an ambulance because Mm of, um, what had happened and somehow conveniently they figured how to bring um, you know, bring it in on the back of the school, um, and then take the kid out and make it appear very, you know, um, quiet. Um, and that, that's really what this, this is. And, and what I noticed at this school is the restraints that they used are all prone restraint and are all, you know, require at least four or five people. And I think that's really the key thing is I think, you know, well, We've had this conversation that everybody's, you know, I always believe everybody has a valid opinion, but I think it just brings a whole new level to it when you've experienced, you know, the prone restraint and not being able to breathe. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I'm able to talk about it, but so many kids who faces okay. don't have a voice to talk about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, you know, Alex, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, and, and I'm always sorry to hear the experience that you had. Um, You know, uh, my son as well went through uh, an experience with restraint and seclusion, and and it really is, you know, really is terrible. And, you know, the hope is that we can we can move people to do do better things. But one of the points I wanted to hit on on what you were saying is that sometimes one of the things that we hear from people is, um, you know, especially in the education area is we have people a little bit like, well, I'm trained in safe restraint. And based on my research, there's no such thing. But I'm kind of curious on what your take is on that. Uh, Safe restraint um, suggestion.
2: So, I think these people, a lot of people in the education industry and even in the the jail industry, I mean, uh, the corrections officers, are told that because you went through this training, what you're doing is now safe. And so, what I've seen from a lot of these restraint training companies is they'll give out a pamphlet that says, you know, restraint can cause death, restraint can cause restrictive breathing. Um, But because you're being trained by us, you won't cause those things to happen. And that's what these people are told. And I think the narrative that there's such thing as a safe restraint is just false. Um, And I, I really think that we need to, you know, make people aware of that, no matter what you do in restraint, there's no such thing to make it safe, you know, it's going to be unsafe. It's going to have safety risks and it's going to have even the risk of death. And what I think is important about this restraint is not only the physical, um, you know, the physical harm that can be done, but the mental harm, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, I think there's a lot of people who suffer from, you know, PTSD, like almost a PTSD and sometimes even PTSD after they're gone through restraint seclusion. Um, I know some people, um, you know, some some staff members who have also required intensive therapy when they restrain and seclude children because they were told for the longest time that what they were doing was the right thing to do. And then one day they woke up and said, you know, that's not the right thing to do. And it it really took a toll on them as well. And so, not only is this the mm-hmm, physical mm-hmm. and mental health of students, this is the physical and mental health of staff too.
0: Absolutely. But well, in fact, that even kind of takes us to the next question, which is, you know, I, I've got opinions on this, but I'm really curious about what yours are, which is why do you think restraint and seclusion are used in schools? What, Why are people using these things? I mean, what what's your take on that?
2: I think it's an easy way out of a scenario. So um, for, um, you know, one of the schools I was for the school with the seclusion room, instead of sitting down and having a productive conversation with me in his office, like I think any good school administrator would, it was just easier to throw me in a seclusion room and walk away and forget about it for the rest of the day. I think with restraint, rather than de-escalating, it takes less time. And for them, for teachers, it's easier to just put someone in restraint than it is to try to de-escalate. The situation. I think it's also, it's in a way cheaper. Um, You know, instead of spending all this money on, you know, on counselors or school psychologists or, you know, mental health people and on adequate de escalation training, schools can provide a one time um, training where they teach teachers how to use restraint and seclusion and it's very cheap for the school system and that goes with private day schools too because a lot of them operate as corporations i mean i discovered one the other day that um had an annual revenue of 188 million dollars the family that owns one of the schools i went to they're worth 20 million dollars um and so i think you know it's all about what can they do that would be more efficient for them Less time and less money.
3: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. All right. Dea, you want to take a take a question here?
1: Yeah. So Alex, what do you think that teachers and staff can do, you know, to be a part of reducing and eliminating these practices? I, I think, think we that's a little bit, we talked a little bit about training. You know, we talked about, you know, de-escalation. Did we mention that word yet? Yes. I we so
2: Um, I believe I mentioned de-escalation. De-escalation is always a great way that appropriately avoids restraint and seclusion. Um, You know, I think another thing would be specific trainings like Ucaru with Kim Sanders. Um, You know, that obviously prevents restraint and seclusion. And I think we really have to root down to why is the, why is, you know, why are certain behaviors being exhibited by a child that teachers feel like would warrant restraint and seclusion? Because, you know, in my experience, children aren't light switches. There's a, a step up process of, you know, of aggravation that causes them to, um to, you know, to exhibit the behaviors that teachers deem unsafe. And I think, you know, another big thing is the terms we use in terms of, you know, it's not, that the kid's not aggressive, they're distressed. Um, and I think, you know, I kind of got off track, but to go back on to Dea's question in terms of what teachers can do, I think it starts with advocacy as well. Um, and I think, you know, when teachers go advocate within the school system and go to the, to the administrators as a whole um, and say, you know, and this is, just a start as you know as they have the ability to say hey look prevent this um, and let's try something else now that's not always going to work because sometimes administrators are so set in their ways that they don't listen which makes it hard on a teacher because you have the point to how much can I speak out without you know getting in trouble Um, and that's a very Mm -hmm. difficult situation and I think what I think it starts in your classroom I mean even if you picked up de-escalation things on your own without the help of the school, I think you would see restraint and seclusion um, reduce in your your classroom if you were a teacher. Mm-hmm.
0: You, you know, it's interesting because I have conversations with with educators on a regular basis. Uh, people that are working in classrooms across the country or schools where they're using. Uh, restraint and seclusion sometimes heavily and, and I have a lot of conversations with teachers that that know it's not the right approach and, and and sometimes are people that are trying in their local systems to influence change and and sadly sadly those people are sometimes not not elevated to help others but rather they are retaliated against um you know for speaking out against practices and it's really it's really um, Disturbing that sometimes there's a very protective culture in in certain schools and districts, uh, where rather than improving and doing the right thing, people that have different opinions are sometimes shut down. So retaliation is a real thing that happens to families uh, that complain or teachers that complain. But you know, hopefully, hopefully as we you know kind of raise our voice with more and more people uh, speaking out and trying to make a difference, there's a point where they can't stop us. That we, we we've got to we've got to get to that critical momentum.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the budget line yeah, counts too. When you absolutely. see, when you see a school that has prioritized training to teachers, um, and that's evident in the budget, uh, you can see that the school system values the safety of the students and the teachers much more than not investing in professional development like this and allowing restraint and seclusion to be the go to for behavioral intervention. Mm hmm. mm So. Alex, um, and I think. Go ahead.
2: Oh, and I think to kind of add on that point, I think what a lot of schools aren't aware of, and this was the situation with Grafton and, you know, in our conversations with Kim Sanders, she was telling me when she went into this, she didn't even realize this would be an outcome. But they saved tons of money because their teachers right. were no longer having to visit the doctor's office because of defense injuries during restraint when children are defending themselves. Their teachers no longer had to visit the hospital um, because of, you know, a children, a defense injury from a restraint. And so I think, you know, I think you can also as a school save money. Um, you know, by not using restraint and seclusion. So yeah, and um, that that's just data. the point I wanted to make.
0: Yeah, I mean, that grafting data is compelling for other reasons as well. Not Not only did they find that they were reducing and eliminating the use of restraint and seclusion and saving money, they found that their teacher satisfaction was increasing as well. So their teachers were happier, they were using less restraint and seclusion, they were having fewer injuries. And, you know, I often say that we can we can reduce and eliminate restraint and seclusion and make our schools safer for students, teachers, and staff. And I think the data the data shows that. Unfortunately, there's often misperceptions, and people think that they need these uh, these interventions to remain safe, when in fact the opposite is true.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I remember at a at a uh, a speech when a teacher held her her arm up with you know it was obviously had injuries on it, and she said, "Well, this is what." my students do to me and that's why I need restraint and seclusion and my response was well no you don't need restraint and seclusion because if you weren't constantly using it all day long then you wouldn't have those injuries all over you Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of goes you know I think that's on point as well just because you know we're not injuring teachers by and we're making teachers happier and so it's really a win-win situation to um, reduce and eliminate restraint and seclusion.
0: Right. So, so on that, and, and Day, I see you're muted, by the way, just in case you didn't realize it. Um, I want to men- ask you, Alex, and, and, you know, it's been a number of years since this happened to you. Um, and, and I know what a uh, you're kind of a thoughtful person you are and how much you how much you've, you know, kind of thought about your experience and what happened. But my, my question for you is if if you were to have an opportunity to talk to some of those educators today that, that did this to you, I mean, what would you say to them? What would you what would you do to, to try to get them pointed in a better direction?
2: Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, some of them I wouldn't talk to at all just because, you know, like the, the one who subjected to me to seclusion, I think, you know, I steer clear from him. Um, but I think a lot of the, I guess, aides who were naive and, you know, just ignorant and doing what they were told to do. I would definitely talk to them because I don't think they meant harm and what they were doing. And I guess, you know, I would bring up, you know, a lot of the data and, you know, and present it from a look at what you can do, you know, by not using this in your classroom. I mean, I remember, you know, that school, I went to um, one of the aides, she had actually left that school um, and went to a different school to be a student special education teacher in a public school setting, and we she's become a good friend of mine, and we were talking, and she says, you know, I went from a young aide who was using restraint and seclusion every day and doing what I was told was best by the school to not using it at all, and she said, my kids are performing better in the classroom. Um, You know, I feel like I'm happier in the classroom um, you know, and she was just telling me all these great things that had been done with restraint seclusion. And I think, you know, um, if, if she can do it, really anybody can, can mm-hmm. do it. Because I mean, she, she literally went from using restraint seclusion every day to not using it as all. And the results in her classroom um, were exceptional.
0: Yeah, and, and we've seen that time and time again, where where you know people are able to make that turn, and and you know the the results speak for themselves. Sometimes it's seen as a burden to to get the training or to get the the background, but and people say, well, we don't have time. And and the truth is, you don't have time not to work with and address children that need some some extra help. I, I have a question. You know, I've been mainly sticking to our script here, but the question just popped up from a user. That I think is really relevant to what we just were talking about. I'm going to pop that up real quickly, and then Dae will we'll go back with another question. But this comes from uh, Brooke, and Brooke said, "What would you say to other children that have been trauma that have experienced this? uh, What helped you to process the trauma?"
2: Um, So I think you know that's a really good question, and thank you for watching Brooke and writing that. Um, I think a lot of children who have experienced this need to be assured that they're not alone. Um, because I think that was a big thing is you have this feeling like you're the only one who's been through this. Um, and that's not the case. And I guess, you know, and, and that that's a difficult question um, in terms of what exactly what I say. And I think, you know, really just being there to, to listen um, and try to help as much as possible would be great. And what really has helped me is, you know, if I have an amazing team of you know of, of mental health professionals um, and advocates you know who who are always here to assist me um, and that's really what's made the difference.
0: Yeah, and I know that you know I, I've I've talked to your dad before and I know you've got a very supportive family and I'm sure that that's really you know made a a huge difference as well for you. Yes, definitely. All right, dear.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's been a number of years since this has happened to you. And, you know, having a son that is 16 now that this happened to in the sixth grade as well, um, you know, this question is important to me because uh, he's got my son has a, a few choice things that he'd like to say to the folks that were involved in restraining him. But I wonder what would you say to the staff at the school that practiced uh, these methods on you?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, I would, I would, to staff particularly, you know, I think rather than, I think some of them, you know, like I said, I wouldn't talk to, you know, who were all about the dominance and power, um, you know, and I think to the, the, the younger ones who were kind of, you know, just doing what they were told, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be angry with them. I would approach it more of a, you know, a, and then an, a, I would try to educate them more than anything and say, you know, this is what can be accomplished by not using shrink seclusion.
1: Well, that sounds really reasonable. So, that kind of leads me into, you know, having this experience again, myself and my family, I wonder how did this experience affect your family? Um, yeah, so I think,
2: um, it it really affected, um, you know, my family in a way where it kind of became, you know, a big focus of ours in terms of, um, you know, and, and what we've tried to do is we've tried to turn it into a positive thing by taking it and using it, you know, to promote change um, in, you know, Virginia and across the country. And I think, you know, what and the way that it affected my family, and I think as, as traumatic as the things that, you know, happened, I think I wouldn't be here today, you know, advocating for this if this hadn't happened for me. And so I think as traumatic as this is definitely, you know, I've tried to make it as positive, you know, as I possibly can. And I think, you know, family-wide, family it's just kind of, I think it brought a new awareness to my family, you know, and that's not just my, my parents, but my extended family as well, um, you know, and I think I've had, uh, I've been grateful to have a lot of support, I mean, and I, I think going back to, you know, what I said about my parents earlier, you know, my um my grandmother was in sixth grade teacher for thirty seven years. Um, and I think, you know, she was appalled to hear that this goes on
3: mm-hmm.
2: in our classrooms. And I've been grateful to have, you know, her support and um and my and the support of both of my grandfathers and I think, you know, and my my uncles and aunts and I think it's really brought an awareness to the family of of that, you know, what exists and and that, you know, as horrible as this is, it does go on.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. This question is really important because I think the scope and the breadth of the problem and the consequences, a lot of people don't realize, and the teachers that are involved in practicing restraint and seclusion don't realize that the trauma extends beyond. Um, even that moment, but into an entire family in years to come. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. So, so let, let's let's tease this out a little bit in terms of your advocacy. So, you know, here you were you were victimized by restrained seclusion. I mean, you, you were put through this thing that you should never have been put through, and and that's hard enough. But how did you move from? from that, that position where, you know, you were you were having all these things happen to you to actually become an advocate. It's a huge leap. And I mean, oftentimes, you know, I talk to, to parents all the time um, who, are, who have gone through things like this with their family, and they're, they're not sure to, how to get started. And, and you've made such huge leaps in your advocacy. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what got you started and, and what you've been doing?
2: So it kind of started, you know, with my, you know, and I think in his mind, and any person would think this would just stumbled upon, this would be, oh my gosh, this is a horrible thing. This has got to be illegal. Um, And that's kind of where his research started. And then it became a, you know, what do you mean this is perfectly legal? You know, how is that possible? And so um, he had kind of, um, he was in a a class for um, the, I guess, Um, advocates for people with disabilities, and he was kind of already in that, just because, you know, for for me, and this was, and he had happened to be in it with someone, um, her name's Jamie LeBon, and she's the former um, executive director of the Arc of Virginia. And, you know, they were classmates in this class, and he had started talking to her about it, and then she did some digging together, and so that's when the Arc kind of, you know, jumped on it, um, the Arc of Virginia, and with my dad, and then the next thing I know, you know, I was kind of being um, talked to about it, and and he had asked me, you know, if I wanted to help or not, because you know I think it's traumatic, and I said, well, of course. And so next thing I know, you know, I was nine years old giving a speech um, in a joint committee with Virginia state delegates and Virginia state senators. Um, and that's kind of where it all got started.
0: So, Alex, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to share a couple of images here that you shared with me. And maybe you can talk us through this a little bit. But, uh, you know, they kind of show, um, you know, first of all, uh, kind of that, that you started this at a really young age and, and kind of show some of the things you're doing. Uh, I'm going to kind of walk through a couple of these images. And would you mind uh, talking to them a little bit about, um, you know, what they are and, uh, you know, what kind of part of your story they're from? Yeah.
2: So um, this first one is with Colleen Quigley, and she's a reporter for NBC12. And we were doing an interview about my experience with restraint and seclusion and about my advocacy work. And she actually came out to one of my private day schools, and that's where this was. And this was the last private day school I attended, and it was an amazing school. Um and they actually helped successfully transition me back into public
0: school. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so let me move on here. There we go. And, and Alex, I don't want to embarrass you here, um, but thanks. but you you were adorable there with your bow tie and and seeing these pictures of you at, at 10 years old out there advocating and and you know, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know. If a, if a lobbyist goes and talks to, to Congress or to rep- representatives, it means one thing. If a parent goes, it, it, I think is even more powerful, but someone like yourself, sharing your own story of what happened to you is incredibly powerful. And I've seen you speak in kind of quiet rooms uh, as they really listen to what you have to say. So, you know, I just wanted to, again, you know, kind of bring up, you, you started this very young and uh, really we're making a lot of change. So what was this about here?
3: So
2: this was, and I think you can see the award on the table. Um, I was, um, I won an award by the Council for Exceptional Children. Um, and this was the, you know, the interview um, in which we had an interview when I was given the award. And this was um, the largest crowd I've spoken in front of in person. Um, I believe, you know, there was around 5,000 people in the auditorium wow. um, and special educators all across the country. Um, And so I was really grateful to win that award for my advocacy work. That's great. Um, So this is a good friend of mine um, and I think she's watching now. I texted her, so hopefully she is. Um, But this is Senator Barbara Favola um, and she actually introduced along with delegate Dickie Bell and Virginia, the original um, regulations on the use of restraint and seclusion. You know, she's remained a really good friend and mentor over the past six years, Um, and I guess she's kind of watched me grow up since we've been, you know, talking since she was, and since I was nine, Um, and she's an amazing person an amazing advocate for people with disabilities, Um, and I know she also brings the education perspective, as her son is actually a school counselor, Um, and so I guess particularly mental health with students with disabilities is a mm-hmm. really big thing of hers, mm-hmm. um, but she's been an incredible person to work with over mm-hmm. the years.
0: That's great. And, and tell me the, the, I know you mentioned this to me before the, the orange scarf. What was, what so was the
2: orange? The orange scarf is the symbol that um, we use at the Arc of Virginia. When we're lobbying in DC, we have orange scarves and we have bright orange um, bags. And so, the the whole orange idea is it kind of stands out. And so whenever we're on Capitol Hill, um everybody knows, you know, if we have the orange, then we're with the Ark of Virginia. Um and I've, you know, lobbied a lot with um, you know, my really good friends at the Ark of Virginia and they're all amazing people. That's and they've great. done great things. That's
0: great. And I'll share this with you. I've never shared this with you before Howard probably but my favorite color happens to be orange. So, you know oh. I'm not one of the blue green people. I'm I'm orange. So all right. How about this shot here with you in front of, uh, something of the arc there?
2: So this was at the Arcs state conference. Um, and that was kind of a, it was the, you know, the theme was obviously together we can move mountains. Um, and so this was kind of their little photo backdrop they had. And, um, and so I, I did take a picture with it and I was a keynote speaker at this conference. Um, and I spoke about self-advocacy.
3: That's
0: great. And, and you, you have been moving mountains. So I think it was a, a good opportunity. And here um, we got, got a shot.
2: So this is, um, a local elementary school. Um, and this is actually the elementary school where my mom teaches. Um, and I was invited to do a presentation on exactly what restraint and seclusion is. And, you know, and just kind of, what teachers can do. And so I really focused on, on building relationships, um, particularly and de-escalation. And I think, you know, afterwards, I really received a lot of messages, um, talking about, you know, how a lot of these teachers have used what I recommended in their classrooms, um, and how it's improved them, particularly those who teach, you know, um, special education because my mom actually, she does not do self-contained, but she does collaborative special education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, and I think that's powerful because what I've noticed is when I've been able to get into these schools, um, and I've also spoken um, to to high school teachers as well, that there's a completely different narrative than when their unions hand out packets telling them that they need restraint and Mm seclusion to keep them safe. Um, And, you know, what I found going into schools directly is that I meet a lot of amazing and really talented teachers who want to make a difference. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: they're able to effectively then make a difference um, by using practices that best work for um, people with disabilities in the
0: school. That's great. That's great. And I've got one more, I think, here.
2: So this is um, a a picture of me um, and. I think Don Beyer actually took that himself. Um, So this was a picture of me introducing the, um, or reintroducing the Keeping All Students Safe Act to the um, U.S. House of Representatives.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I want to, before we go back to our questions, we had another uh, question here from uh, a member of our audience that I I think is a really good one for you. Uh, As you talk about advocacy and, and you're out there trying to affect change, Uh, Has there been any retaliation for you or your family for sharing your story?
2: Absolutely. Um, And I think before I address this question, someone had put in the comment section that Barbara Favola is amazing. And I just wanted to echo that she definitely is. Um, So to go back to that question, um, you know, we I was um, (laughs) I was, um, you know, threatened legal, um, legal I guess retaliation from the school, um, and this is the school with the family worth $20 million. And so they had the money to, you know, really come after me if they wanted to. And, um, you know, and they had told us that if we use their name, they would be suing us and we could see them in court. Um, and they also threatened to sue Columbia university and USA today. Um, and so I think, you know, Columbia and USA Today had no problem with it whatsoever. But for us, it was a little bit of a different story. Um, and I think, you know, and and he he told us to kiss our house goodbye. I mean, this is how far the people can go. And I think uh, this other, this is a big piece of retaliation um, is the, the uh, you know, when we went to sign the original um, regulations, you know, advocates, the governor um, and, you know, myself and my family, we received um, death threats from um, anonymous people in the mail. Um, And I think it's really a, it's for me, you know, it's where's the human decency, you know, where's the line of of human decency when you start mailing, you know, 10 year olds death threats, you know, where, Mm -hmm. where is your, your human decency? And that's really what it is. and so we actually had to cancel the ceremony for the bill. Um, the governor signed it privately, but we could not have a formal ceremony because the security staff um, were concerned or they saw it as a credible threat. Um, and and I, I really don't think we ever found out who sent them, you know, and mm-hmm. it was definitely mm-hmm. investigated, but it was never, um, you know.
3: Right
0: right
2: gotten to the bottom
0: too yeah yeah i mean it's re- it 's really upsetting and sad and and unfortunately i 've heard too many stories of of parents and families and and teachers and others uh getting threatened, you know getting you know um you know the the fear of retaliation, people losing jobs i mean it 's really terrible um I know I said i was going to not i was going to stay on the script here, but i 'm going to move off for one more second because there there was a question that was brought up i think that 's really important. Um, and this question is about the Keeping All Students Safe Act. And and I just want to preface this by saying that, you know, Alex, you, you and Day, are, of course, working together uh, to develop a, a plan around promoting the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what what the Keeping All Students Safe Act is and kind of the work that you and Day are beginning to um, do to help support that?
2: Yeah, so before I get into it, you know, like you said, I'm really collaborating with Daya on this, and she's been a wonderful person to collaborate. She's an amazing advocate. Um, but what the Keeping All Students Safe Act essentially does is it bans the use of seclusion. So we will, you know, 100% see seclusion go goodbye, because I think what we've discovered is that when there's a barrier between a teacher and a student, it just it makes the situation, um, you know, so much more unsafe. Um, and then, in addition, you know, I think the other big thing the Keeping All Students Safe Act does is it, um, I believe it bans prone restraint, if I'm correct. And then it also, it, in terms of other restraints, it really regulates it to where it can only be done in a life threatening issue. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely some other things in the Keeping All Students Safe Act, but those are really the big themes that come um, from the Keeping All Students Safe Act.
3: Okay, great.
0: Uh, Daya, you want to carry on with some of the questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in seeing all of the activities and your your history that you've worked so hard in advocacy, uh, you know, I find you to be very experienced. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what do you think is the the key to effective advocacy? You know, having three laws passed in Virginia, you know, leads me to believe you know a little something about being effective, so. Tell us a little bit more about
2: that. So the biggest thing in Virginia that made it the key to effective advocacy, and this was important because at the time the three laws went through, um, we had Republican majorities in the Senate and House, but we had um, Democrats uh, in the the governor's office. And so the big key was bipartisanship. Um, Barbara Favola and Delegate Dickie Bell They worked very well together and delegate bell is actually a retired special education teacher. um, And that the bipartisanship made a difference. You know, the ability to, you know, put the divisiveness aside and make a difference for students with disabilities was, I would say, the biggest thing. Um, The other big thing would be um, the the media attention. You know, I say the media makes a huge difference. Um, you know, when you're and I think that's part of the issue with restraint and seclusion is when we don't see this reported on a lot. But other issues, you know, and I think about, um, you know, maybe I guess like um, the whole issue of, of health care and the government, you know, that's a very common issue because the media reports on that all the time, um, whereas restraint and seclusion, you know, there's a lack of awareness. And I, I really think, you know, the, the media attention and the, um, the going um, and the bipartisanship is, is key. And also, you know, being able to come to the table with other lobbyists. You know, I mean, there's always a we always have, you know, what we want. But the, at the end of the day, a compromise is part of it. And so, you know, we had to sit down with the attorneys who represent these schools and say, what are we willing to compromise on? Um, you know, and that's kind of a, a part of it too. Now, you know, now we definitely came out with the better end of the deal on that. Um, but at the, we didn't get everything we wanted and that was, you know, kind of the way it was. And there's always a chance to go back and get more. Um, but you know, you're, it's, I think as sad as it is, it sometimes has to be recognized that not a hundred percent of the goals can be met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That, that is a big one. And to big, piggyback a little bit from that question, what do you think, because I feel like as an advocate, I, I feel like I know some of the things that are the most rewarding to me on a day of of, of going out and, and getting busy in this way. I wonder, what do you think is the most rewarding aspect of your advocacy work?
2: I think the most rewarding aspect is to see everything change for other people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, I guess to hear from from families and parents and teachers and people with disabilities that, you know, that this really affects them in a positive way, you know, that that is means so much to me. Um, and I think that just really shows how important the advocacy work is that we're doing.
3: Great. Agreed.
0: So, in your in your advocacy work, you know, you're sometimes in a position where you are there providing testimony or or kind of going up against paid lobbyists, people that are getting paid money to to do this professionally. Um, what's that experience been like for you?
2: I think what I really learned is, and and this was uh, probably one of my biggest takeaways, you know, at, at my especially when I was younger and had no idea of how nasty some people in the political game can be. Um, you know, at nine years old, I was called things like a, a liar was told I wanted to hurt. I was told I wanted to see teachers get hurt, um, you know, just all of these horrible things by these lobbyists who make, you know, 600, you know, 700, 800, $900,000 a year all to protect these people, um, there were, you know, I, I thought really the main lobbyists I thought were three lobbyists. Um, one of them worked for a special education union. One of them worked for a um, superintendent's union. And one of them worked for um, uh, one of them worked for a sc- one of them was a school board attorney. And then there was a fourth one and they worked for Virginia's education association. And those were kind of the four I had to fight. And, you know, and they were all best of friends. And that just made it even worse because what happened is they would sit together and they would strategize what they were going to do together. And that just, you know, and that made it tougher. Um, I mean, I think, and it's, and this goes back to human decency. We had a, a, um, a the chief lobbyist and general counsel of the VEA released an op-ed titled some students need to be restrained
3: Mm.
2: and you know and and that's kind of where I asked and I think um you know and some of the members of our team were at the board meeting where she spoke and when she was not speaking she couldn't even listen to our stories you know she had her headphones on and was knitting a blanket
3: Mm. um
2: and so for me you know it, it goes back to the to the where is the human decency in a mm-hmm, lot
0: of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so on the flip side of that, some of these tough experiences, I know from talking to you through your advocacy work, you've had the opportunity to meet some interesting and even famous people. Uh, do you have any experiences that stand out for you, people that you met, um, you know, while you've been involved in this work?
2: So I think, you know, before I kind of go to the to the famous people, even a lot of the, the non-famous people are like the little local advocates or, you know, or small town newspaper reporters and just you know reporters in general i've met a lot of fantastic people i think some of the people you know who i've had really good conversations with um was you know um Alyssa milano um you know she's definitely an ally and she called me after the um nbc news article dropped um and then um you know uh Kelly and Conway we've also spoken and she watched my Fox News thing and I think that shows you know if you look at you know the views of Miss Conway and the views of miss Milano they are completely opposite and that really shows us how you know how you know bipartisan this issue can be I mean they are you know completely opposite. I've also um, met some really great people in politics like um, I've met, Um, Senator Warner from Virginia, and he's an incredible person, um, Senator Murphy and from, I believe he's Connecticut and Senator Murray from, um, Washington state, um, you know, and they're all amazing people. Um, Senator Meg Sally from Arizona, she was a great person to talk to and she's big into mental health and a lot of, and her bipartisan bill actually shut down a lot of the, um, A lot of the mental institutions in her state. Um, And so I think, you know, there's definitely been some fantastic people that I've had the opportunity to talk to, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: That's great. That's great. And I will tell you that that I was, uh, I I, I was, uh, when I was young, a young kid, uh, Who's the Boss? and Lissa Milano was on, and and I I had a little bit of a boyhood crush. So, you know, I'm a little jealous. (laughs) And,
2: And this is what's funny, is I didn't even know who she was.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. I
2: had I I went to my parents and I was like, you know this woman? Her name's Alyssa Milano, and yeah. she followed me on Twitter, and she wants to talk to me. And they were like, <laughs> uh, and I was like, I really don't know who she is. And That's then I. Funny to figure out who she was. That's yeah.
0: great. That's great. So you also started an organization called Campbell Advocacy. So in addition to the work you're doing with the Alliance, you've got Campbell Advocacy and you've got a lot of other things you're involved in. Can you tell me a little bit about Campbell Advocacy and kind of what you're doing and what your goals are there?
2: Um, so really our, you know, our goal is similar, you know, and we, we focused a lot on restraint inclusion, but we tend to be broader and our goal is really to just make a more inclusive, you know, community for people with disabilities, um, and specifically advocate uh, advocate for appropriate national education. Um, so we've done a lot of things, like you know, we've we've definitely been on board with the restraint and seclusion regulations um, in Virginia and CASA, and we've been involved with that. Um, we've filed a lot of complaints to both Virginia and the U.S. Department of Education, and even some you know, State Department of Education, uh, who are outside of the state, on behalf of families, um, you know, we've connected families with, um, you know, either affordable or pro bono attorneys um, to help them. And so I think, you know, our, our big thing more than inside advocacy is directly working with families and helping them.
0: That's great. That's great. All right, Day, you want to take a question here?
1: Yeah, I'm interested when you're not advocating, Alex, what is it that you enjoy doing? What kind of things do you love to do?
2: Um, so I play the piano. Um, that's something I'm really into. And I guess, um, you know, this it, 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 it relates to advocacy but not the advocacy that, you know, we focus on. As I've also, you know, Politics is my really big thing. I've had the opportunity to work on some campaigns for some amazing um, people in the state of Virginia, which I'm really proud to have been able to do that. Um, And I think also, you know, I am a a horror movie fanatic. And so I definitely watch a lot of those. Um, And I think, you know, I, I don't have a lot of hobbies, surprisingly. Um,
3: like
1: horror, like Texas Chainsaw, or like Friday the Thirteenth, or is that? Am I dating myself? I guess <laughs>
3: you know,
1: you're not. You're not because you know. So my
2: parents were born in the '80s, so '80s horror movies definitely are a frequent thing in our house. Um, but I think my my favorite one would actually be Chucky. Um, you know, not the new ones, but the the older ones. Um, I think those are great. And I even, I had, um, I got a a doll that resembles him. And so we set it up around the house to freak people out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mental note in in case we end up at Alex's house, you know, because that might, that might just freak me out. You know, I might be the one running out. Um, um, I want to give you a chance to ask another question, but before I do, I just want to mention folks. So we've been going a little over an hour now. Um, and gotten a lot of information, but I want to give people a chance if you have questions for Alex. So we've got another question or two that we might ask, but uh, I want to invite you to ask any questions or make any comments that you might have in the chat. Um, So Dave, why don't you take it away with that question and and feel free again, uh, those of you that are watching, to to put any questions or comments that you have in the chat.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of like a wrap-up question as far as I'm concerned. Um, Not that we're wrapping up quite yet, but um, you know, in, in the big picture, you know, what are your hopes and dreams? You know, like, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? And then even so, further if, if you thought about it.
2: So I definitely, um, you know, my dream school would be the, the university of Virginia. Um, and I think I want to major in political science and I think I've kind of gone, you know, considered two paths um, from there. And I think I either want to be a teacher or a lawyer, one of the two. Um, And I've been leaning towards lawyer. um, And I think what I've realized is I've talked to like a lot of people, uh, you know, I guess it will all depend because I could get there and it might be completely different than what I realized. Um, And so I think um, you know, those are kind of two paths I'm leaning on and I definitely plan on running for political office. Um, and so if if I won, I would be the first openly autistic person and, you know, and either the, the Virginia House of Delegates or Virginia State Senate or and Congress.
1: I had a feeling you were going in that direction. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, ironically, you know, so, you know, again, having having had the privilege to know you, Alex, and, and get to talk to you and, and really, um, you know, just get to work with you. Um, you know, I always forget and I, I don't mean this in any bad way, but I always forget that you're 14 right. because when I'm talking to you, I feel like I'm talking to a, a, a graduate student. Um, you know, you you are um, you know, you, you've you done your research, you're you're very articulate and just a, a great person. And I always forget. I'm like, you know, he's. he's He's the same age as my son. He's 14 years old Uh, and you're doing amazing things. And and sometimes jokingly, I call him uh, Senator Campbell because that's (laughs) that's just what I imagine happening. So, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, Alex, you've got a you've got a long career ahead of you of of influencing change and you're you're doing great things now. So we do have some questions coming up that I'll begin to pull up here. And let me just take a a look. Uh, I'm going to bring this first one up here. Uh, from Dana, and that is uh, let's see. Oh, was that a two-parter? Okay, uh, okay. So, what are the best pieces of the bill, and what could we assist with trying to get um, added to the bill? So, I assume we're talking about the Keeping All Students Safe Act. So, again, you know, what what from your perspective, you think are, are the best things about it, and you know, if there was anything you'd want to add, what might it be?
2: Well, first, Dana, thank you for using our banner on your Facebook profile picture.
3: Yeah.
2: It looks That's great. great. Um, But to add to um, the pieces of the bill, I don't think at the moment there's anything, or or, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you asked what to add to the bill. No, the best pieces of the bill I would say are the ban on seclusion um, and the ban on on prone restraint, um, because I feel like those are kind of the two, you know, at least my two big things that I'm trying to focus on. And um, in terms of assisting on the bill, um, you know, I would recommend calling you know your representative in Congress or um, you know your or your two senators. Um, because I think you know a lot of it is is a lack of awareness. Um, and I think you know, just kind of to bring it to their attention of this is going on. Um, and that's what's, you know, unfortunately, this happens. And I think too, if you could back it up, you know, when reaching out to these people with direct data, from your state, because what I found is that's what they're into. So like, if, you know, if I go see Senator Warner from Virginia, I bring him Virginia data, because that's where he's from. And that's what he's going to care most about. Um, And I think that's really where it is. And I think also reaching out to, um, you know, Congressman Beyer and Senator Murray and Senator Murphy, um, even though, you know, they might not represent you, they're definitely the champions and leaders on this Legislation, and so they would probably be able to point you in the right direction as well.
0: Yeah, and of course, I'll I'll add, Alex, that that in addition to to that, that um, you know, the work that you and Day are doing around building a campaign to support the Keeping All Students Safe Act, uh, I would just say that. to You know, keep following us at the Alliance. We're working on some some tools and ways to encourage people to uh, participate in the process. And, uh, you know, we're working on things like an advocacy guide and, you know, potentially letter templates and things like that to um, provide things that make it easier for people that want to get involved and do things. Um, So I've got a question here from Linda. Uh, Were any of your incidents recorded it often becomes the child's wits against the teacher and others defend because they don't want to be involved in failure to report. Does your advocacy include fighting for cameras in classrooms?
2: And so I guess by recorded, does she mean on paper or in terms of like physically?
0: In, in reading the question and, and, and with the cameras of the classroom, I'm thinking that she's that's meaning that's kind of what I thought. Yeah, well. yeah. But reporting, so, of course, is an issue as well.
2: So. Here's the thing: is that you know, um, this it, possibility that they could have been recorded. The principal used to hold up that camera, um, and when we asked for copies of the recording, he claimed that he never turned the camera on, and it was just used for um, for and it was just used for a you know a like intimidation. I think is the word he used. Um, But, I mean, I believe it was on, and it wouldn't surprise me if he put the, if he deleted the footage or did something to it. Um, But other than that, no, nothing was really recorded. Um, And um, I would also add, you know, in terms of the fighting for cameras in the classrooms, is, you know, is originally I was on the side of, you know, there's two sides to this issue. Um, but now I do firmly believe that we need cameras in the classrooms. And the reason I believe that is because I had heard from a lot of people who have said, well, it's a privacy issue, right. um, you know, and I understand that. And my argument to that is, you know, if we can have cameras in the hallways and cameras at the front door, then what's the difference of having them in the classroom? Because, you know, it's it's still the same person and it's still the same face.
0: Right. Yeah. And cameras are certainly a a, a um, issue that has a lot of elements to it. And I think there's a lot of different opinions. But the one thing that, that I've heard, um, you know, is that um, there are a lot of students that are um, being subjected to restraint seclusion that are nonverbal. Um, you know, you you were able to come home and share your experience, mm-hmm. and and you know, a, a, even kids that can share their experience being restrained or secluded sometimes don't. There's often this assumption that well, my parents must know that this happened, or I'm embarrassed and I don't want to mention it. Um, so you know, from the perspective of a nonverbal student, th- there's something different to think about there because there may be a, no other, you know.
2: And that's why I support cameras, you know, and I think there are two sides to the issue. Like another fear that I've had with cameras in the classrooms is teachers using them as a method of intimidation.
3: Right, right, Um, right.
2: Kind of, you know, the way it was used with me. And that, that's definitely a concern of mine. But I think weighing the positives and negatives, I think there's more positives leaning out towards the cameras in the classroom.
0: Right, right. Uh, I want to shift to a comment here from another Alex and another Alex I've talked to. Hey, Alex, hope you're doing well. Uh, he says, uh, I don't have much of a question as much as I just wanted to let Alex know that I'm amazed that the bipartisanship the autism topic can create. Um, uh, why is it elections, uh, you know, okay, th- this is why elections matter. Um, so just kind of making the, the comment that, um, you know, and, and certainly, as you look at the the number, um, you know, of, of children that are autistic, um, somebody, you know, you, you know, someone that is, and I think there's, you know, certainly a lot of support around that as well. So that's a, a good Yeah, point. and
2: I would add to that, that in the state of Virginia, our restraint seclusion laws passed unanimously in the House and passed with thirty nine out of forty, or thirty nine to one in the state senate. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, to to echo that point, it's definitely amazing.
0: Right, right. Uh, I got another just nice comment here. Dana says, "Amazing, kudos to you, Senator Campbell. May your journey be blessed." So, uh, I'm not the only one voting for you, Alex. You, you've got you've got some people voting for you here. Um. So, you know, we, we've we been going a while here and I think we're going to wrap up here shortly. Um, but, you know, again, um, you know, want to th- want to thank you, Alex, for for all that you've been doing. I mean, you've been fighting this for for a number of years now. Um, and I mean, it's it's a, a pleasure and honor to work with you to try to try to influence change. And your your story and your your knowledge of this is is just really, really powerful. Um. So, you know, I want to thank you for for coming out today and uh, talking to us about this and and sharing, you know, what you know your experience has been. So, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me, Guy. It was a pleasure to be here, and thank you for being here as well, Dea. Um, it's always great to see you both, and thank you for your advocacy.
0: That's great, and and Daya, I, I wanted to to thank you as well. Uh, you are you are muted, okay. I wanted to thank you as well. Um, this is your first time helping to co-host one of these, and it's to me it's really great. Um, you know, we've been doing this series for a little while now, uh, and and Beth has been been helping helping me out, and I, you know, been drafting her in event after event. Um, and, but it's really great to have people have the opportunity to meet other people on our our team and, and know about the work that everybody's doing. So Daya, thank you so much for, for helping out with us today, and I look forward to having you help out with some more in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm so grateful to be here. And I'm I'm very thankful to you, Alex, as well, for all the work that you've put into CASA and all the work that we're gonna get ready to put into it some more.
3: Yep. Yeah. And,
0: and we're, we're continuing to get great messages for you. And yeah, thank you for your leadership and ad- advocacy. You know, love seeing fellow young people standing up for what's right. And and I know Chad and and he also is 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 a fairly young person who's trying to uh, impact change. Um, but thank you guys. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and make some announcements here. Uh, but thank you, Alex. And thank you, Daya. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so just a couple quick announcements here, just to wrap things up. Uh, we will have another, uh, Facebook live, uh, training event coming in two weeks, two weeks from today. Uh, Cheryl Poe will be joining us. Uh, I don't have a full description yet of the, uh, the session, but Cheryl is a, uh, well-known uh, advocate. Uh, she also she has the uh, Advocating for Kids uh, organization, uh, as well as uh, a yeah, parent special, uh, parents special uh, national special education, parents and special education allies. I, I'm going to get it wrong here, but very involved in, in advocacy and special education. She'll be joining us in two weeks. I uh, want to encourage you to uh, continue to come to the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint website and our Facebook page. Um, we have a whole series of articles that we're beginning to run. Um, You know, we've been doing articles for a long time, sharing people's stories. Uh, We've had just a a number of great stories being shared with us recently. Uh, Appreciate all the people that have been reaching out to us that are uh, interested in influencing change. And, uh, you know, look forward to uh, talking and sharing more of these stories with you. So hope you can join us again next time. And uh, thank you very much. I will look forward to seeing you. Goodbye.